welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. You know, over these uh, recent weeks, as we have moved to being uh, to doing church virtually, I have been asking myself the question and sort of thinking about, well, what is the church? Um, and even as we went through this sort of rebranding process and, and finding a name that we felt like was a fit with who we are, you're asking these questions. Well, what is a church supposed to be? What is our church supposed to be? What is the church? Um, it's obviously, at least in our case, it, it can't, it's not one building or a building. We don't own any building. Uh, in Vaughan, we meet in a movie theater. In Bolton, we meet in a community center. In King, we'll be renting a church, but it's not ours. Um, our office space is not, it's just something we lease, but it's not where we gather on, on weekends to, to worship. And so for us, you know, we know, okay, well, the church can't be just a building. If it was, then the church is shut down now because you can't gather in buildings. And so we know it's not just that. For some, maybe we think, well, the church is an institution, but at least for now, we join the list of places that have been deemed non-essential, and for lots of good reasons, you know, and so I'm not here to sort of debate that, but actually the idea of non-essential, you know, for people who would say, well, it's an institution, and, and for people who need that, or they're a part of that, or that's been a part of their life, that's great for them, I don't need that, it's sort of a non-essential institution in my life, some people might say. Um, but we know the church is more than just a building or even an institution, that those aren't even the best ways to describe it. And we have had this beautiful opportunity, really, in recent weeks to show that the church is the gathered community of people. And, and it's been beautiful even just to watch within our own congregation as people have been reaching out to each other, as we've gathered individually, as we're meeting in home groups online, as we're connecting with each other, texts and um, sharing pictures, stories, meeting together, and now even gathering weekly together as a community. We're saying, no, the church is the, is the community that is gathered together around Jesus and is able then to carry on even in times like this. Um, but you have to know, and, and so hopefully that's been a positive experience for you, for any of you who would say, yeah, the well, this is my home, this is my home church, this is my community, these are my homies, these are my peeps, like whatever the cool word is now, I don't know what, I know none of those are cool anymore, um, you know, whatever that is, uh, but if you're new, that this would hopefully, you'd actually begin to find that this is a community I can, that I can call family, that I can call friends. But you need to know that most people, that you're connected to, or most people in our city, judging by the statistics or maybe the anecdotal evidence from my life or your life, most people, when they hear the word church, um, they think a number of other things. They think, good for you, not for me. Like, I'm, that's good, you need that in your life. I have yoga, I have sports, I have something else. Good for you, not for me. Other people would say, well, if they're honest, kind of irrelevant and boring. Like, I don't, I don't connect to this. I don't see how this has any sort of meaning to my life. This is a part of an institution or a, a, a days gone by. You know, it meant something to our parents or to our parents' parents or whatever, but it's not part. And quite frankly, most of the exposure I've had to it, like, I, I fall asleep in it. It's boring. Um, other people would maybe say, well, it's worse than irrelevant or boring. It's hypocritical or judgmental. You know, people of faith and leaders of faith, and there's, there's so many stories, unfortunately, we could turn to, or maybe not even ones that made the headlines, but in your experience growing up, where it's like, well, it said one thing, did another, either in my home or in my church or whatever, or, oh, this is the community that judges people. That's what, if the church is ever vocal about something, it's usually about what they're against. It's usually about people who aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, and so there's a judgmental kind of critical spirit. And maybe even in light of that, there's, there's people, you know, I know people, close friends of mine, right, who would say, you know what, Ugh, more harm than good. Like, they don't love that I kind of made the transition.
transition into becoming a pastor from what I was doing before is kind of more harm than good. And so the, there's the full gamut of experience and responses to church. And maybe I'm oversimplifying, but I would say lots of people I know in my life, um, it, whether neighbors or friends or um, uh, people that I've been connected to through work experiences or uh, families that we met through our kids' sports or school or whatever, would say, yeah, there's somewhere along the line, that's kind of what comes up for them when they hear the word church. But here's what's so interesting about this. When Jesus walked the earth, when he came to earth to show us who God is, Jesus spent most of his time with people who thought like this about faith. Um, he spent most of his time with people who were not a part of the religious center. You, you see, you hear often about him talking to the crowds, the crowds of people. And even the, way, the place that Jesus did most of his ministry with and spent most of his time was sort of outside of the religious center of Palestine, of his area. It was in Galilee. It was a mixed bag of people. There were people that Jesus talked to who grew up with faith, but had kind of left it and were basically had adopted the values of the culture. Um, you know, they were kind of like, um, yeah, they had it in their background, but not relevant for them anymore. Maybe irrelevant. They didn't connect how it, it worked in their lives. For others, they felt like the religion that they was a part of or the, the, the things that the religious leaders communicated was actually a heavy burden that they either felt crushed by or said, we don't want to live in this anymore. And then there was people who just had no background with it whatsoever. And that was actually characterized most of the people that Jesus spent his time with. And interestingly, it seemed like he was making a beeline for them. And so I think, first of all, that just tells us, hey, if you're someone who's in this boat, you know, you're not someone who'd say, oh, Jesus wouldn't be interested in any, maybe he's only looking for people who believe. No, Jesus actually made a beeline for people like you who think that way. And for those of us to say, well, what does it mean to be the church if Jesus himself was the one that moved towards people like this. Interestingly, it was this group of people that eventually made up the movement that Jesus started. And I think I want to camp out on that word movement when we talk about today. Well, what is the church? Not an institution, not a building. It was actually a movement initiated, fueled by, and centered around Jesus. The Jesus movement is really what started 2,000 years ago that carries on still today. And I think that's not just sort of a clever turn of phrase. I think when we look at how Jesus did his ministry and how he brought people together, it was all of those people that actually made up the first community of the Jesus movement. And movement is, is, is actually a really compelling word because it, it was also described what Jesus was doing as he was moving people away from something and towards something else. And as we are sitting here and maybe, you know, as we are um, kind of operating in a new identity as the well, as a, as a church, to say, well, what does it mean? This is a perfect time for us to actually rethink this. Well, what is the, it's a Jesus movement. What does it mean to be a part of the Jesus movement? It's a perfect and necessary time for this is we are not in the normal sort of rhythms of how we do church. No buildings, no being able to see each other face to face. We can't hug it out. We can't eat after service, which we love to do together. We're kind of on our own. So what is the Jesus movement? And then for some of you that are here saying, I'm still exploring this. I'm still trying to figure out. I think in the past, I would have been one of those people, sort of boring, irrelevant, disconnected, judgmental, hypocritical, good for you, not for me. Well, what are we talking about here when we talk about the Jesus movement? 
And so I want to actually explore, well, what were the things that Jesus was moving people away from and moving them to, and how does that continue to shape us as a community that, are, that is part of this Jesus movement? <clears throat> and the first thing I want to talk about is that Jesus moved his people from religion to relationship. From religion to relationship, and, and I'm not being just sort of clever with words here because there's alliteration, you know, the R's, <laughs> oh, or uh, that you think I'm being clever and modern in terms of putting a new spin on an old story. In fact, Jesus, this was one of the most profound movements Jesus made. Think about this for a moment. As I said to you, we are beginning what is known in the Christian calendar as Holy Week, moving towards um, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, moving towards Good Friday, which re remembers and celebrates the death of Jesus. Okay, so you maybe know that, and the cross is sort of maybe the universal symbol associated with the person and life of Jesus. But we just kind of need to be rem reminded of the fact that the people who killed him were the religious leaders, which I think it just first this needs to make a step back and say, wait, obviously this wasn't primarily about him starting a new religion. The religious leaders killed him. The reason they killed him was not because he was trying to start a new religion, but because he was trying to end it all together. He was actually trying to put an end to religion and say, you don't need this anymore. And so the religious leaders got to the point where they realized we can't have this message going around anymore. We have to end him because he is trying to end this all together. Maybe one of the most sort of profound moments where this, this agenda, if, you, if we want to call it, of Jesus was revealed is in a verse actually that Kate mentioned in her blog uh, last week if you had a chance to read it. Jesus is having a conversation with the religious leaders and he says this, you study the scriptures, talking to the religious leaders, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them, that is the scriptures, you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Here's what's interesting about this word, eternal life and life. Um, and, and you've maybe heard me say this before. That word life, the Greeks had two words for life. One was bios and the other one was zoe. Bios referred to biological life, physicality. But zoe referred to vitality. The kinds of things when we say, oh, I feel alive. This is like vitality. The, the thing that's true about me, the thing bubbling up from the inside of me when I feel alive. And Jesus says to the religious leaders, you're studying the scriptures diligently because you think the scriptures are going to give you eternal life. And he wasn't talking about sort of heaven someday, one day. He's talking about this idea of life inside of us that never ends, that starts now and continues well on into eternity. He says, you think that studying your scriptures is what's going to give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me and you refuse to come to me to have that life. This is so interesting because if you look through actually all the world religions, world religions and the leaders of them always pointed to the teachings as the source of life, always left kind of the teachings. Buddha referred to um, the, the four noble truths and, the, and, the, the, and, and the, I think the eight steps of enlightenment as the teachings 
I mean, Hinduism, it's the Vedas that are considered sort of the things that you cling to. Muhammad pointed to the Quran. Every good sort of religious founder teacher points to the scriptures, points to the book, the holy book. Jesus says, no, no, this is the one case that's not. The holy book points to me. The holy book points to the teacher. If the book has of any value, it leads you to me. You're not going to find life in the book. The book points you to me. That's where you have life. In a sense, he was saying to them, this the religion at best was a temporary thing. It was temporary. It helped you begin to sort of know God in some way. But now that God is here in the flesh, you don't need the temporary thing anymore. Other people would say, well, that religion is irrelevant to me. And he's saying, yeah, it actually is meant to point you to relationship. Others would have felt like in his audience, you know what, this religion has become a burden to me. At other times, he criticized the religious leaders. He's saying, you put a, a burden on people's backs, but you don't do anything to help them lift it. And so Jesus is bringing this beautiful message of saying, this is a movement. I am moving you away from religion into relationship with me. And it wasn't just about the scriptures he was saying that. He took every single aspect of their religious life, whether it was the temple or the sacrificial system and everything, the priests, and he said, all of this stuff, if it had any value at all, it is pointing you towards me. Which maybe would have been great news for the people who said, like, I'm done with religion. But for the people who got paid by religion, who were the leaders and the brokers of religion, the power brokers, they said, this is no good. He's trying to end this. We have to end him. And I think that's the very first thing we see about the Jesus movement that, that he started. It was, an, it was signaling the end of religion as he was moving them away from religion into relationship with me. He says, you come to me to have life. But that wasn't the only thing that Jesus was moving people away from and into in the Jesus movement. In another conversation with another religious leader, we read this. One of them, as one of the religious leaders, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, just a bit of context for this thing so we can understand this other dynamic in the movement that Jesus was explaining here and initiating and fueling. It says an expert in the law came to test him. And so the Jews, um, if you were listening last week, I we, we, uh, said to you, they did not, only, not only did they have the Ten Commandments as the law, but there was the whole law. They had 613 laws. And you're like, how did they turn 10, 10 into 613? Well, to some degree, that's what people do. But um, in other words, they, they, but they wanted qualifications. It's like even now we're getting... Um, you know, directions from our government of do this, do that. And we're all online going, yeah, but can you do this? Can you hike? Can you do this? Like, we're trying to find, we, you know, tell us how to do this law thing. And so the Jews had 613 laws. And so they had experts in the law. They were religious lawyers, in other words. They were, um, don't think law is some sort of um, necessarily government legal, although it included a whole bunch of things about how you're supposed to treat people, how you handle money, what happens if your neighbor damages your property. So they had these experts, these religious lawyers who would interpret the law, right? Because in every law requires interpretation. Well, what about this situation? What about that situation? So these were people who not only knew all of the 613 laws and ostensibly kept them all, but they 
they were the people who interpreted the law. So they, they were religious lawyers. Um, the kind of people you would love to have at your cocktail party, I know. Um, right? But this is what they... And he comes to Jesus as a lawyer, right? Basically approaching Jesus going, I'm going to try to discredit you. That's maybe what happens in a court as a lawyer is trying to discredit the argument of the opponent or the defendant or whatever. He's coming and saying, oh, okay, like I'm going to trick you. And he says to Jesus, hey, which one's the most important law? And if you look what Jesus does, he actually answers it in two ways. And he says, first of all, there isn't just one, it's two. And they both have to do with love. Love. He says the, the most important commandment is love God with everything you have. Love. And the second he says is like it. In other words, you ask me which one's the most important one? Well, I'm saying love God, but then I'm also saying there's another one that is as important, that is so connected to it that these two things cannot be pulled apart or seen as one without the other. Wherever there was one, there will always be the other. And that is also about love. It was a movement from law to love. And, and he says, actually, he says, look, he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The law was considered the law of Moses, so all of the Ten Commandments, then all of the 613, but the prophets were all of the prophetic writings. So most of what they would have called the scriptures at that time. So Jesus went beyond the question and said, I'm not even just talking about what's the most important law. He said, everything and the holy scriptures that you have are about these two things. Everything is about love. And, and it's not this kind of like, hey, love. It was like, no, no, don't you understand? The way to think about how, because the law was supposed to, that's how they, that's why these guys were in business, these experts in the law. They're saying, this is how you do this. This is how you do that. When this happens, do this. When this happens, Jesus says, you know how you know what you're supposed to do? What does love require of you? Not what does, does the law require of you? What does love require of you? And that's why you read a lot of Jesus' teachings was trying to get them out of this fixation with law into love because in many ways, them following the laws has a, had actually gotten in the way of them loving people. And maybe we can say, yeah, that's true. That was true about my religious upbringing or my church upbringing or whatever. It seems like somehow religion, the law gets in the way and we don't actually do what's most loving. And so that's why Jesus points out to them things like um, the fact that they had these Sabbath laws, which are all about not, well, the Sabbath was about rest. And then they said, well, okay, rest, that means no work. Well, what's work? Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you cook? Can you pick up your mat? Can you make mud? Can you do this? Can you make bread? Can you do all these things on the Sabbath? They had all these rules. They couldn't, the things they couldn't do on the Sabbath. And so that's why you see oftentimes Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And he's pointing out to them saying, don't you see someone is in need of love and you, your law is so confined to you, you're not even doing what love would require of you. He would say to them, if your own animal fell in a ditch on the Sabbath, wouldn't you help it out? How much more do we need to love each other on the Sabbath? You've been thought so much about what you can't do. You've missed the opportunity to love. When he talked to them about adultery, he said, you know, this isn't just about whether you've slept with somebody else, but whether you're lusting after them because lust is not love. Lust is an attitude that takes, I want to use the image of what I see or fantasizing about that person or looking at something online and saying, that's for my gratification. He says, no, love is about what is the most loving thing. How do I sacrifice myself for people? If I really love them, I won't use them. What does love require of you? And Jesus did this in, in sort of overt ways like that, but in subtle ways too. 
I was talking with Tony this week and we we're talking about the fact that it's interesting that if you look at most of the teaching of Jesus, and Jesus' teaching is so significant, not only because it was like they're the wisest words ever spoken, but Jesus was a rabbi. And a rabbi's teachings, in other words, there was other religious leaders about this is how you interpret the law, this is how you live, this is who God is. Jesus' teaching were primarily with stories and statements and not many commands. Like he told, he had a whole genre of story that he used called parables. They were simple little stories that illustrated something. And as he was telling the stories, he was inviting people in to think. He was even just dignifying them by the fact that he was teaching them, not just talking at them. And he, you know, he has this one story about lost things, about this person who loses a coin and how much if you lost a coin, you'd really look for it, you know, that, that day in people's lives where they lived from you know, it was subsistence living and they didn't have a lot of money. Okay, so of course, what if you lost a sheep? Well, if you're a farmer or whatever, that's really valuable. You're going to look, look after that. Well, what if you lost a child? As in like, not they, they died, but they wandered away from home. Wouldn't you search for them? Well, that's how God is, <laughs> right? He was using stories to draw them in. He made statements and not so many commands. And this was John Mark Comer, one of the guys I listened to, a pastor at Bridgetown Church, made this observation I thought so profound. When you make more statements than commands, Jesus wouldn't say, you should do this, you should do that. He would say, hey, you ever notice the grass of the field and the flowers and the birds? They're beautiful, right? Well, they don't, they don't like worry about where their food's gonna come from or how beautiful they are or what they're wearing today. And if God looks after all of creation and makes it not just functional, but beautiful, aren't you more important than creation? So why do you worry? right? Statements, not command. You shouldn't do this. Wrong for you to worry. It's a sin. It's just saying, look, inviting you into thinking about the world in a new way, thinking about love. How does, how does God love you? How do you love God with your heart? It isn't just about the stuff you do. What's going on in the inside? How do you love your neighbor like you would love yourself, right? It helps us understand why, why is something like hoarding not, not something we're encouraged to do. Why? Because, but the hoarding instinct says, oh, I got to look after myself. And Jesus says, hey, I know you got this instinct to look after yourself. Look after your neighbor in the same instinct that you have to look after. It'll probably keep you from doing wrong. You know, what does love require of me? Jesus moving them not only away from religion to relationship, but away from law and to love. Now, this was the movement, in a sense, that Jesus initiated. But as I said to you, the, the, his death and resurrection were the high points of that. And it's even, this was essentially what got him killed, right? This movement that he started. And yet, three days later, as we're going to celebrate next weekend, God raised him from the dead, which simply proved he had the authority authority to dismantle religion and invite people to follow him. It simply proved he had the authority to say, all of this is about love, love for God, love for each other. It proved he had the authority. But the question is, and remained at that time, would the new movement of people, the Jesus movement, the church that was birthed then, would they carry on this movement after he was gone? See, Jesus, after he died and was raised to life and ascended to heaven, he had birthed the church and they were now beginning to form this new community, this new movement of people. A few hundred people growing into a few thousand, you know, quickly. And very early on in the life of the church, this Jesus movement, they were tested. They were tested with a conversation and a circumstance that was either going to move them backward in where Jesus had come from or was going to keep the movement moving forward. And the, the conversation was this. 
In the early church, and you can read about this in the book of Acts, which is the biography of the church, people were starting to come to faith. They were starting to come to Jesus. And it was mostly, early on, it was Jewish followers, but now by, by the hundreds and thousands, it was all of those other people that hadn't grown up as Jewish people or whatever, didn't know who Jesus was from other religions and no religions or whatever, starting to follow Jesus. And you think, wow, this is amazing. They, they, were, they were becoming followers of Jesus. But there were certain people, and this is interesting, it was Pharisees or religious leaders that had actually now become followers of Jesus that were watching all of these non-Jews, which is actually all of us, most of us, coming to faith. And they were saying, wait a second. Okay, they're following Jesus, but I think they also need to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. To which all of the men were like, Oh, honey, I'm not feeling good today for church. Why don't you and the kids go? You know, right? Like, oh, all the men need to be circumcised and followed the law of Moses. They were saying, no, no, like they were bringing back the law. They were the law of Moses, the 613 laws or whatever, and circumcision. And you have to understand, I know that is kind of outside of our paradigm, but circumcision was this sign of being a part of Israel. And they were like, okay, well, we're, we're God's people. And now Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is Jewish. So now don't you have to be Jewish to be a follower of Jesus? And so that's what this debate was about. And it was very significant. And it created a conversation and even arguments as they were saying, wait, are they bringing back this law? Are they bringing back some of this religion? Or is this part of the movement that Jesus has started? And so after a lot of prayer and a lot of conversation and debate and discussing what was God doing around them? What was this? What did Jesus do historically? And what is happening now all around us as we're watching thousands of people come to follow Jesus, to find life in him? And after a whole bunch of conversation, you can read the longer story. Here's where they netted out. Jesus, the brother of James, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem, says this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And they basically said, no, they don't need to get circumcised. They don't need to follow the law of Moses. They actually had a couple of guidelines for them, just these things. So it went from 613 to two or three. It's like, just do this because this is what is actually going to help us continue to function as the Jesus community. And if I can just kind of reword that of what that meant for that um, Jesus movement, the church should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. The church should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. You know what this movement is, we've described it before, is from fences to a well. Now, what do we mean by, what do we mean by that? Well, I explained to you last November as a part of this, how we even came up with this name, was this idea that um, um, Alan Hirsch and Michael Frost, sort of two researchers who are from Australia, noted that um, when people farm, they usually put fences up to keep sort of their animals in and other animals out and, you know, do that. But in Australia, where you have hundreds and hundreds of acres, you ranch, you can't, and you can't put a fence because it's far too big. He says, well, how do you keep your animals, how do you keep your, your you know, kind of flock in close to where you are? He says, you don't build fences, you build a well at the center. And if the well is alive and full of living water, people will come. The animals will come, sorry. And we said, he said, what, what is the church? Is the church a community marked by fences that says these are the boundary markers? These are, this is who's in, this is who's out, this is what you need to do to get in. If you don't do it, you're out. Or if you, do the, if you don't do these things, you're not in. Or is it marked by a well, by Jesus living water at the center? They said, we think Jesus started the movement with putting himself at the center. 
And our hearts so resonate with that as a church. We think that that's, that's what the apostles were getting at when they said the church should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. In other words, it isn't about the fences, all of the hoops you need to jump through, all of the things you need to do to get in. And once you're in, that's all that matters. And we're really focused primarily on the fences, what separates those who are in and those who are out and saying, no, we actually want to be marked by, we're primarily concerned with the life-giving, life-changing source that is Jesus at the center. Right? When Jesus says, hey, come to me to have life. Because a community, a church marked by fences actually leads to pride. Those who are inside say, I did it. Or it leads to guilt. We're feeling, oh, I shouldn't be. I'm inside, but I'm acting like this. And I did, and I, I'm people going back and forth over the fence. Or it leads to others who approach a fenced-in community, a fenced-in area, and say, oh, that's not for me. That fences repel. Fences lead to pride and guilt and repelling those who are, quote, outsiders. But no, we want to be marked and say, look, all of us together, wherever we are in the journey, are moving closer every day to the, the life-giving, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ, that that is what the church is meant to be. And so that's why actually we said, you know, when, when we were began to talk about this last fall and we had actually spent like the better part of two years trying to find names for our church. We had tested a bunch of them, sent them out to you, you sent it to different people and the line just kind of went dead. Things were busy. I went on sabbatical, I got back and our staff was like holding the flag for a bunch of other things while I was gone and then we just, nothing really happened. And then we, we actually preached on this back in November. You can go listen to that online. And just started to pop up and say, what, what, what if we call ourselves a well? What would it mean to entrench within our name, right in the center of our name, what it means for us to be the church? What does it mean for us to be the Jesus movement? That we want to be a community that is actually tearing down the walls, tearing down the things, not making it difficult for people who are turning to God. If God is not making it difficult for people who are coming to him, if Jesus made a beeline to people who were different than him and who um, weren't sure they wanted who God was about, and he said, no, God accepts you, God loves you, and, and he liked them, and he ate with them, and he welcomed them in, and he started the movement with them, then our goal as the church, as people who are part of the Jesus movement, is to actively continue to tear down the things that separate people from God and saying for our part as the Jesus movement, we don't want to put up anything, any kind of walls or fences that Jesus himself has not put up. And what does it mean to say, actually, yes, I know he is the source of life for me. I'm going, come with me. And so we're just praying that that name, every time we see it, every time it goes out on social media, every time you log on to the website, every time you get an email, every time you come to church or you log on or whatever and you see that, it reminds you this is what it's meant to be as the community of Jesus people. And so here's my encouragement to you. Next weekend is Easter weekend. And Easter weekend tends to be a time where many of us who would say, well, I'm not really part of faith would think, okay, maybe I'll go or maybe I'll go back or maybe I'll try it for the first time. For a lot of people, maybe it's, it's a time where they begin to become aware, well, maybe, maybe I should try this or, um, you know, as a part of my history or someone who, you know, I know goes regularly, maybe I'll be a part of that. Well, this season, this time in our lives, guys, there's, there's no greater opportunity to connect people with the life-giving, life-changing uh, source that is Jesus Christ than, than this Easter because no one has any plans. They can't go anywhere. They can't go to Aunt Martha's for turkey or whatever it is you were going to eat. We're all stuck at home. And it's also a chance for people to check out church like in their jammies or whatever because um, you don't actually have to go into the doors of a church. I mean, we don't have doors in our church or whatever. We don't meet in churches. But 
It's, there's lots of barriers sometimes of people even coming close enough just to see Jesus because of what the institution or the building maybe says to them or what they think it means or what it meant to them growing up. Well, all that's gone. And so we just want to encourage you, and I want to put this out to you. Who are five people that you could bring to the well next week? And see that see a little play on words there? You know, I mean, like the well, and as in online church, but we're talking about Jesus, right? Who are five people you could bring with you as you are journeying towards Jesus even this Easter? Um, next weekend is our, in our um, Good Friday service at 10 a.m. on Friday and our Easter Sunday at 10 a.m. On, on Sunday. Who are five people in your circle that you could just begin to pray for? And even if you're here and saying, well, I'm still figuring this whole thing out. I'm, I don't, you know, well, hey, if you experience something today, you think, I got people in my life who wouldn't think that this is what church is. Maybe they've thought it's boring, irrelevant, untrue, written it off, judgmental, hypocritical, whatever. I didn't, they didn't know. They don't know this message about the Jesus movement. I want to bring them with me. And so I just want to encourage you to be praying for who that might be and thinking about them. Because friends, if this is what the Jesus movement is about, that we have been moved away and rescued from the burdens, the confines of religion, invited into a living relationship with Jesus Christ. If we have been moved to say, well, what does the law require us to say? What does love require us? What does it mean to love God with everything we have, to receive his love and to show his love? What does it mean to say, no, we don't need, to, we need to actually tear down fences and move towards the life-giving, life-changing center that is Jesus Christ. If this is the movement Jesus started, if this is what's true, I would submit to you that even more than ever in our day and our time when people are afraid, when people are isolated, when people are unsure what kind of foundation they can have, when many of the other things that give us life normally have been stripped away or canceled or, or put on pause, that this is a chance to together come to Jesus to experience this. So I just want to leave you with that and invite you to be praying even now, even as this service comes to a close, even as we finish singing together on who God might be putting on your heart to, to, be, to have an experience of the Jesus movement.